From the heart of the Oregon wine country, you're listening to season six of the Wine Crush podcast. Stories uncorked for wine enthusiasts around the world. Featuring winemakers from the Willamette Valley and beyond. From origin stories to terroir, here's your host, Heidi Moore. Okay, hey everybody, it is time for Wine Crush Podcast again. We are in the sixth season, we are the ninth episode, and we finally have Robert Britton in the house with us today. It's, we've been talking about this for several years, but he is a very busy man, so we got it today. So please sit back, relax, and welcome Robert Britton to the show. Well, thank you, Heidi. I'm glad to be here, I think. You think? <laughs> Well, after <laughs> it's been a hell of a day, I think, for all of us. So, you know, we just don't know what way this is going to go. So right, exactly. it'll be entertaining one way or the other. One way or the, other. Way or the other. Yeah. So let's talk some wine and some background, because I didn't know your background until real. I really just didn't know much of your background until I brought my excavating husband to your tasting room a few months ago. And we started talking about dirt and rocks. And you told me all kinds of things about your past and really how you got into the wine industry. And I just found it so fascinating. So let's start there. How did this all happen? Well, I got into the wine business. It had nothing to do with dirt and rocks. Uh, you know, my total fascination with the association between uh, particularly rocks. I, geology is, you know, has become a passion of mine since I've become a winemaker. And the wines that interest me the most in the world are those wines that are in some way either directly in contact with or greatly influenced by geology, which, by the way, is most of the world. So I would say I probably like most wines. But it really is those wines where their basic uh, geology is significant in the way the vine grows, develops, and most importantly, matures fruit. So how did I get started in the wine business? I was trying to finish a degree in physics with a minor in religious studies when my father passed away unexpectedly very young. And I was born and raised in the Central Valley of California, and I was back in Bakersfield trying to put together the remains of a very convoluted estate. And a friend of the family who was a big produce grower and happened to have a few acres of, that would be in the hundreds of acres of grapes, which went to a large cooperative winery at that point, he approached me and said, Robert, we need scientists for harvest this year. We need people for our lab. And I pointed out that I was a physicist, not a chemist. <laughs> Small and difference. And in fact, I hate chemistry. And he said, that's good enough for me. So he introduced me to the lab manager and the production manager, and they said, whatever, we'll take him. So I started in a facility, a large facility in California, just as a part-time job. But the backup to that story and the reason I was really interested in wine was because people don't realize back in the late 60s how completely uncool it was to be a nerd. Today, Thank you for going back into this story because I was going to stop you before you got too far because you had said this part and it cracked me up. So continue, please. So today, you know, the whole human race has evolved and people have become to accept the fact that guys who may be just a little bit not particularly attractive when they're in high school actually grow up to be very interesting, smart men with high earning powers, right? 
your basic nerd, or they don't ever grow up at all. But in any case, you couldn't get a date. I couldn't get a date. And the guys across the hall from me in the first place, I or second place I went to college, had a small distillery in their dorm room. Didn't spend any time in their dorm room other than to brew their version of vodka. And they had an incredible amount of female companionship. And I put the ethanol attractant together and said, ah, I can't afford a still, but I can make wine. I can ferment whatever Safeway had on sale. And I literally had started fermenting various fruits in five-gallon demijohns in my dorm room. And that's, I like to say tongue-in-cheek, that that's how I got started in the wine business. So how was it? I mean, well, was, it was, was pretty, it? it was pretty awful. I mean, you have to understand that I was going to school at that time at Oregon State. My mother was very concerned that I was going to freeze to death in Oregon, and she had sent me an electric blanket. And the only thing I, I had taught myself about fermentation at that point is the hotter it gets, the faster it goes. So I had these electric blankets wrapped around these two glass demijohns, and we'd load these two five-gallon glass jars, you know, on Sunday with fruits, berries, whatever we could get, and sugar, throw in some yeast using the wrong, totally the wrong type of yeast, but that doesn't matter, wrap the blankets around them, and then we'd drink them the following Saturday. So my only understanding of the fermentation process really was the hotter it got, the faster it went. So that was the total sum of it. So I had a little sort of a slight interest in wine as a dating mechanism when I took this job. The story is actually a little more involved in that and has true a little more truth to it because my father came back from World War II, actually, from the European theater. He was with a P-38 group. He came back with having red wine on the table, and I grew up with red wine on the table myself. And a couple of Basque friends were about the only people that we knew that actually drank wine on a regular basis. But the dating aspect seems way more appropriate for me. So I thought, you know, if I take this job in the wine industry, working that one harvest, I can learn all there is to know about making wine, and I can improve my quality of date. And I am still working on trying to know all about wine. This will be harvest number 50 for me coming up. I have done 49 harvests on the West Coast and have consulted in other places, both in the States and in Europe. I have a degree from University of California, Davis, in Enology and Vit. I own my own vineyard, have my own winery, or at least my wife owns my vineyard and my winery. <laughs> and probably about as completely into winemaking, I think, as a human being can possibly get. And I actually like prefer the, the term wine growing because I truly believe that the great wines are grown, that the person who does the most amazing work is that person who is totally committed to a vineyard through the entire growing season. And I like to say that I start making wine in January when I start pruning. So so that's kind of how I got into the wine business. I did end up running that facility for three years before I decided that the wine industry was really calling me home, and, and I went and did the degree at Davis. And from there, I was hired out of Davis by uh, Gil Nickel to help him start Farniente Winery. That got me to Napa, 
And I spent about 25 years then making wine for various people in Napa, 15 years as the general manager and winemaker at Stagley Winery. And in that period of time, although I did establish a couple of vineyards of my own in Napa, I was never able to actually afford to buy a winery. And I had become very fascinated with this concept of geology and became very interested in Pinot Noir and started a small brand under my own label under Pinot, decided I really wanted to move to the Sonoma Coast. And about that time, an unmovable object, a unique cataclysmic event called Ellen Hunt (laughs) entered my life. She definitely is a black swan in my life. And said, why the hell aren't you looking in Oregon? And I said, well, I've done some consulting and was a little less than impressed. And I felt that the Oregon wine industry was going to get there to be on the world stage, but it was going to take a few more years. And because of her, we I broadened my search. We ended up buying a piece of property in what is now the, the McMinnville AVA in the Coast Range here in the Willamette Valley in 2004. And our first harvest was 2006. So uh, I've been making wine here in Oregon solidly since 2006. So that's a pretty boring start. And I, I don't think so. And I, I will attempt. There's a lot of pieces in there that are really quite interesting. No, One, no, they're not. do you still hate chemistry? No, I don't hate chemistry. But, you know, good for you, Heidi, because that was actually a really good question. I would probably offend a number of winemakers by saying that, in my belief, winemakers are actually some of the worst chemists in the world. And in fact, most chemists make lousy winemakers. So, but it is incredibly important part of winemaking. Nothing like throwing it down and throwing it out there. There you go. There you (laughs) go. So the answer is, no, you don't hate chemistry. So I don't hate chemistry. Okay. And then let's talk about this lovely black swan that you just mentioned because you you bounced right over the top of of this lovely woman that I have just have so much admiration for, Ellen. So I give her and you probably some of the biggest credit for where I am today because you actually spent the time teaching me when I had no business being taught anything at that point in time. Why not? Everybody. um, I I just... Deserves it. Well, thank you. But yeah, I truly had no idea what the hell I was doing in the wine business and probably really didn't have any business being in the wine business. But your wife specifically spent hours with me and then you did as well. You might have scared me a couple of times, but she was always there to kind of (laughs) give me the, now leave her alone, Robert. Yeah. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. So I met Ellen, and she was a, uh, a senior vice president of a of a financial company that actually worked with brokerages for banks. She's a very, very talented, very smart woman, and she's an incredibly great executive. By that, I mean she is someone who mentors and leads well, and she also has an amazing grasp of the big picture. So people like me tend to get bogged down in details. And uh, we, of course, always want to, you know, fight the latest fire that's right in front of us and put things out. And and Ellen is one of these people who just absolutely sees the big picture and manages for the big picture. So she is an amazing person, which why she has been on, I think, every volunteer board in the state of Oregon that has anything to do with wine and wine grapes. And people just absolutely adore her for her ability to to help 
them and their businesses get things straightened out. But in the meantime, the poor woman is stuck with me. Um, <laughs> I, uh, w- a- w- not too long after I met Ellen, she decided, so her background actually is in Romance Languages, and she had gotten married and walked into a bank in San Diego to open an account and instead was hired for a teller's job back in the day when tellers wore airline stewardess, you know, uniforms. And it was all about the fact that she looked incredibly attractive in a short skirt. And the amusing thing about that is within a few years, she actually, not even a few years, within a few months, she, I think she actually was the boss of the per- of the male that had hired her. I mean, it's just that's the trajectory of the way her career went. But she had never intended to do anything in the finance world. And so she quit cold turkey one day. Her, The company that she worked for, when they hired her, their headquarters were in New York and San Francisco. And they moved the San Francisco headquarters to Napa Valley, to the town of Napa. And I happened to meet her at a social gathering because she was living, her and her husband were living in in Napa. And after she quit working in finances, she was hired by a guy by the name of Leslie Rudd, who had just bought the old Gerard winery. And he hired Ellen to basically be his assistant and put that winery project together with him, which she did. And so a few years later, when I was running Stag Sleep Winery, she was running Rudd Winery. And as I said, we had met each other and I became immediately afraid of her. She was so attractive and so just like such an amazing person. And I had, by that time, uh, left my first wife and had had a series of very bad experiences and I was headed to the monastery, I swear. <laughs> Ellen and I were at a, independently, were at a wine spectator event. And I said to her, gee, gosh, I haven't seen you in ages. And how are things? And how's how's your husband? And she said, oh, well, actually, we're getting a divorce. And I said, oh, my God, we better have lunch. (laughs) And we did. And I proceeded to spend an hour telling her about why there was no way in hell she would ever want anything to do with me and why we should never see each other again. And apparently she that upset her a little bit because apparently she had already come to the conclusion that I should be more interested in her. So about a month later, I called her up and said, hey, let's have dinner. And she said, why? <laughs> and I said, well, I just need to talk to you. So when I said I was looking to finally break away from the corporate interests that I had been feeding for years and years and start my own winery, I was way late doing that. And she said, so what are you thinking about doing? And I said, Sonoma Coast. I said, I'm going to do Pinot Noir. And she said, why aren't you looking in Oregon? And I said, well, I've done some consulting. I've been there. And she said, I think we should look in Oregon, which really translated to I would like to move. She was born in Chicago, but raised in, in Washington State and went to UW. And she's like, why aren't we in Oregon, Robert? That's where the cool things are happening in Pinot Noir. And uh, so I added it to my list of properties that I was looking for and looking at. And after about another year or so, my list had shrunk to three properties. 
and all three of them were in the Willamette Valley, in the northern Willamette Valley. And uh, I still believe today that absolutely the finest New World Pinot Noirs and New World Chardonnays are actually made here in Willamette Valley. And I like to think that I've had a little bit to do with that. Well, there you go. And and, and, and I wouldn't and be here without her. And you married her. Well, I needed. Yeah, she said yeah, yes at some point. At, no, actually, give her credit. She's never said yes. So <laughs> I asked her, I asked her because I was a little concerned. I asked her at a uh, a little wine event. So, you know, Bill and Donna with Winderly, who, uh, which is an amusing story how we got involved, but I have been helping them with their, been consulting for them, helping them with their wine program ever since the very beginning. And they were having a release party for their first release of wine. And that it involved a open that bottle night party, which is something you and I should talk about here before we're done, because I think it's incredibly important. And during the course of that, I stood up to talk about the wine that I had brought, which was a, a bottle of wine that I had made. And it's kind of an amusing story if you have time. So Stagsleep Winery, the original property in the Stagsleep District from which the whole area got its name, was started in the 18—really, really it was actually planted in the, in the late 1870s. Um, the winery is built in, in 1890, actually built before then, but that's the official date. And there came to be on that piece of property a small collection of mixed black grapes, as we call them, that's actually a mixed planting of our own varietals. And that produced the real interest in that property for Petit Syrah, for that great variety, which we know as Tarif nowadays. I still like the Petit Syrah name. It was imported into California in the 1800s, both as Petit Syrah and as Tarif. And that led me to making a bottle of wine, which ended up on a table for a dinner for a very well-known Burgundian consultant and all the other winemakers had brought Pinot Noirs to pour. And at that point, although I was making Pinot Noir under my own label at that time, I couldn't bring that to a company dinner. So I brought a bottle of Petit Syrah from this block. And the, the Burgundian consultant was so impressed. He just w w fell over hills on that wine. He came around the table and through a translator said to me, oh my God, did you make that wine? I said, yes, I did. And he said like, ah, oh, if I could make a wine like that, I could have any woman in the world. <laughs> Which brings me back to my opening story about how I got into the wine business, there, there right? There you go. So, okay. There you go. So I told this story at the dinner and then turned around and looked at Ellen. I said, so will you marry me? So she was a little shocked and perhaps more than a little surprised because we had really kind of talked about never either one of us ever getting married again. So she never said yes. We, she did take your name, though. She did take my name. She agreed. Good point. Thank yes. you, Heidi. She, she agreed. She took my name. Yes. She did. She, she did. So, so maybe there, maybe there was some hope for me, or still is. But what we did agree on, though, was like everybody's like, so like, where's the engagement ring rate? And I'm like, so look, here's the deal. I'm pretty broke by now. We've been in Oregon dumping money into this vineyard for a number of years, and here's the deal: we can either buy a little rock, or we can plant three more acres of Pinot Noir. And I really want to plant some swan selection in Oregon. 
on 428 rootstock, which was kind of like my go-to. That's what I thought the ultimate was for, for Pinot Noir, ultimate combination for Pinot Noir on the north coast of California. And I don't know anybody that's doing that in Oregon, and I really want to do it. And this one little hill on our property is so unique in the total functionality of the way the vineyard works on that hill. And we should probably talk a little bit about how site is so incredibly important in forming a wine. That I really want to put this this selection on that hill. Yeah. And she said, appreciating asset, Pinot Noir. Depreciating asset, Diamond. I'll go for the Pinot. Because when I kick you to that, Pinot's going to be worth a lot <laughs> more money. So we did. She's a smart woman. So she's a very smart woman. So that became her engagement block, essentially. All of our block wines, and we're getting ahead of my story of why I'm doing what I'm doing in Oregon. But all of the individual block wines that we make off of the estate have their own unique color. So if you notice on a very simple, but I think very elegant classic Pinot Noir label, there is a small little bit of nod to modern art in that there is a rhomboid, an irregular four-shaped sort of squished square on the label. And each one is a different color. And the one for her engagement block is black. So it's become known as the Cygnus block. It's Cygnus because of the fact that it is planted predominantly to the swan selection of Pinot Noir. It is Cygnus because the Northern Cross, which is my favorite deep sky object in the summer winter in the summer night sky, the swan, Cygnus, comes up over that vineyard right about now. And because of the fact that Ellen was this incredible black swan who really turned my life around and made me a very different person. So that's Cygnus block, and that's the story of how we ended up in Oregon. And, and in McMinnville. And how we ended up in, yeah. in McMinnville. Yeah, yeah. I, I love actually where that property is. And I know we've talked about this because my husband yeah. actually grew up at the base of that hill yeah. his entire life. Yeah. And so he yeah. has all kinds of troubling stories of, right. of, yes, totally, totally. Yes, of yeah. doing all kinds of things up there. Yeah, yes. exactly. Yes. Actually, if you, one of the things I really like about it is, is if you look at the classic old picture of the UFO, which defines McBinville yep. and the UFO days, the UFO is actually... Up over our property. I mean, I mean it's not really our property that. directly, but if you look, it's right in that direction. You're so famous. It's like, no, it's just that <laughs> it explains why it's such a weird property. Okay, well, so the, property, well, there's right. You're just yeah. kind of magnetically all pulled there together, I guess, right? I guess. We, weirdness I guess. all the way around. Right. Okay. Let's talk about the property up there because okay. your favorite thing to talk about that I have gathered over the years is rocks and dirt. And my husband has called bullshit on dirt and rocks affecting grapes since I've I've introduced wine to him a few years ago. But when we came to the tasting room a few months ago and we're talking rocks and dirt, you blew his mind. Like he literally did not stop talking about it all night long. So let's talk about rocks and dirt. Why is it so important? And we don't have seven hours to cover this. So you got to cover it and just cliff note this baby so, together. Yes. 
So one of the most fascinating things about wine is that because of the way the grape matures its fruit and because of the available different selections of varieties and selections within varieties, it's possible to make unique wines. And to me, the most compelling are those wines that are unique because of where they're grown. If you look at the wine business, you can really sort of separate it into a couple of categories. One are wines that are made by winemakers to be in a certain way, right? And blending is winemaker's greatest tool, and the way you make those wines is by blending. So if you think about a large company who makes large cases of wine, numbers of wine, the most important thing to that customer of that winery is that that wine tastes exactly the same no matter the vintage. Every year. Every year it tastes the same. You know when you go to the grocery store and you buy that bottle, you know how it's going to taste. For sure. Right? And that requires a unique skill set of winemaking. The opposite of that is that vineyard-based property where the wine tastes of that site and nowhere else. And that's a completely different skill set of winemaking. And in my opinion, it's the most interesting and the most compelling. So I, by the time, you know, I'd been in the wine industry for, I don't know, 35 years or something, I had made a lot of wine. And I had become fascinated because of my work at Stag's Leap in Napa. I'd become fascinated about why the wines made from certain properties, made exactly the same way, but from different properties, taste exactly like that property and not like the other properties. And through that, I had become completely obsessed with geology and not just the rock part, but the way geological formation here on the West Coast has so shaped the land. Well, it turns to be true that geology has had major impact throughout the world, but I'm particularly interested in wines that come from properties that are formed by volcanic activity, right, which is the West Coast. And so for me, the when I came to Oregon looking for a place to grow Pinot Noir, trying to find a place that had all the pieces that would allow me to make wines that were unique and to hopefully make more than one wine of the same variety on the same people property that were different because of the property itself was like the ultimate challenge. We own 128 acres of which 30 acres are currently under vine. I make four Pinot Noirs off of those, out of those 30 acres spread across We actually utilize about 50 acres in the total vineyard operation, but it is spread across a series of low hills. And it gives me the opportunity to find differences in the soil, more importantly, in the underlying rocks, and also play with aspect, which would include the slope and the exposure. So in our case, that means not just sun, but also wind. And those things all change the way wine tastes 
because it changes the way the fruit is matured. So I'm very intrigued by the fact that you can take, I can take two wines that are grown 50 yards apart. I make them exactly the same. And all of my years and knowledge of winemaking has given me the skill to know exactly how I can, well, maybe not exactly, what the hell, you never know exactly, but how you can perhaps, I so often think of painting, of actual creating a piece of artwork, and I try not to overemphasize the creative aspect of winemaking because I think most winemakers make too much of it, but you really can help shape a wine in such a way that you do not lose the characteristic of the site or that wine, but it is unique for that vintage. So all of my wines, of the four wines that I make, each one of the four wines tastes the same in essence every year, but each one tastes different because of the vintage. And vintage is fascinating to me. So because of the way the grape matures, every vintage is different. It allows the wine to be different. And so I like to say that the property is the soul of the wine, but the actual personality is the vintage. And I think that holds true with people. I think people actually, everybody has their own wine personality. What wines are appealing to them? What wines are interesting to them? So when you come to my house for dinner, Ellen is a phenomenal cook. And I'll go back in my cellar, and I can pretty well go back 30, 35 years in my cellar to find wines that are still quite drinkable. In fact, they're damn good. And I will try to find a wine that matches what Ellen wants to cook or that I want to make a statement with. And then I will challenge myself to find a vintage of that wine that matches your personality as a wine drinker. Um, When's my invitation for dinner? Because <laughs> yeah. you've just now like, like I need like inked in. Right. Yes. Right. There you go. I've been in your kitchen, but there was no cooking happening at that <laughs> that point. We were just chatting. Yes. <laughs> so I really believe that sort of the ultimate expression of winemaking is a wine that it's not about the winemaker's hand. I mean, the winemaker has to have their skill set in order, they has to understand the mastery of their craft to know when and how to interfere without making an obvious statement. So as a good example, we all use oak barrels. Some winemakers use yeast. Some winemakers use other additives in wine. And those can be used in such a way that they augment or support a wine, or they can be in, used in ways that actually dominate the wine, that actually really dictate how the wine tastes. There's a lot of winemaking techniques in the cellar so wines, fine wines, I mean, very good wines can be made in the cellar by a very knowledgeable and skilled winemaker. But great wine, ah, great wine is made in the vineyard. And it's made by a winemaker who is so skilled that their ego isn't in the bottle. Is your ego in the bottle? Damn right. Okay. Just, <laughs> no, how can you better, not? Better, no, I just needed to clear not, right? that up. Right. No, yeah. you can't. You can't. You just totally can't because, because I, I mean, you, you work all of an entire year, actually for really for two years to get a glass of Pinot Noir into the bottle. That's, that's a hell of an investment. It's, and you know, and in the case where yeah. I own my own vineyard, Ellen and I own our own vineyard. 
we share the winery. We have partners in the winery that would be Bill and Donna at Winderly. But we basically own it. We don't have part we don't have partners. We don't have investors. So literally my entire livelihood is on the line every year when I grow those damn grapes. And I have chosen to go down this path of total risk every year. You seem to be doing okay with it though. Well, I'm having a hell of a good life. Yeah. You know, it's the interesting thing about the wine business. A lot of people look at the wine business and then what they really do is they look at the quality of life if you're involved in the wine business. And it's incredibly attractive, therefore, as a second career for a lot of people. Yes. Because you eat and drink well and you meet fascinating people. Yes. I know even your insurance agent is pretty interesting. Some days. Some days, <laughs> some days not so much, but some days, yes. I will totally hop on board on that because I just really had no idea. I mean, I thought I had pretty interesting people in my life before mm -hmm. I stepped into the wine business. Right. And now my world has completely blown up with all these crazy, interesting people that make my life fun every day. And even on True. the insurance side, insurance sucks. Nobody <laughs> likes dealing with insurance. But I, because of the insurance and because right. of the podcast and right. whatever else, I meet some of the most interesting people. Right. Well, that's the one. Ever. That's the wine industry. Yes. And I think Oregon is, and particularly the Willamette Valley, but all of Oregon really, is really, I think, a unique statement of the wine industry and one of the best, if not the best place to be engaged in the wine business. And it really boils down to this idea of cooperative support. So when I mentioned earlier, I thought, gosh, you know, I don't know that I ever really wanted to be involved in Oregon because I was concerned about how long it would take the industry to become significant on the world scene of wine. It's a long process. Again, you only get to do this once a year, right? And there's a lot of wine growing in the world. And it's amazing that Oregon did it in 50 years. And the reason they did it in 50 years is because this incredible amount of collaboration. So almost all of the early, the pioneers of the Oregon wine business were people who didn't know what the hell they were doing, but were totally attracted to wine for various reasons, mostly lifestyle reasons, and then became obsessed with making better and better wine. And that attracted people who perhaps had a little bit stronger background in winemaking, who began to be very interested in Oregon and came to Oregon. And so actually in a relatively short period of time, 50 years, Oregon went from being predominantly a producer of indifferent fruit wines to being one of the finest producers of Venefra-based wines of Pinot Noir and Chardonnay in the world in 50 years. It's incredible. It's incredible because, I mean, even when I travel outside of the Northwest, whether right. it's, you know, Vegas or East Coast or, mm -hmm. or even Europe for that matter, people now talk about Oregon wine. Absolutely true. Yes. Absolutely and, true. and it's amazing because I've always just kind of considered Oregon just kind of this hidden little right. ho-dunk state right. in the middle of really nowhere. Mm -hmm. But now it, there's a lot of great things about Oregon. So I, I mean, <laughs> I mean nothing bad by that. But I mean, when you grow up in a small town, you still have that small town mentality right. on, on the really the big stage. And it's so right. interesting when people, because it used to be, you say, I'm from Oregon. They're like, huh? And I'm like, north of California. And they're like, right. 
oh, oh yeah. I, there is yeah. something. It's not Canada up there. Yeah. And I'm like, you know, and I'm like, but now they're like, oh, you guys grow wine up there. Yeah. And I'm like, yes, we do. Yes. <laughs> I have nothing to do with it, but yes, we do. I drink a lot of it, but yes. But not only has Pinot Noir been, you know, the thing that really has put Oregon on the map, but now Chardonnay has really come back on the stage. And, and you guys have been very involved in that mm-hmm. and probably one of the four, I don't know, forefront pushers yeah. of it. Mm. So I want to shift to Chardonnay just a little bit because Chardonnay has such a bad rap. <laughs> and I think it's, I hear it all the time from, you know, tasting room people, nobody wants to drink Chardonnay. And I'm like, well, why is that? You know, and I think it's, they have a very distinct like vision of what Chardonnay is, and it's not Oregon Chardonnay. So the way to respond to that is to just go, yes, you're right, right? uh, Chardonnay sucks. You can buy it in the (laughs) box. And uh, yeah, good luck with that, right? Well, you know, it's kind of like that grape called Merlot. Oh, yes. Trash grape. God almighty, why would you ever grow that stuff? So the finest... Red wine, probably the most expensive red wine in the world, is made almost 100% from Merlot. And the finest, I would argue, the finest white wine in the world, or at least some of the finest white wines in the world, are made from the grape called Chardonnay. And there's a reason for that. Chardonnay is a spectacular grape. It is a grape that you can grow almost anywhere, and it will produce an acceptable glass of white wine. And that's very difficult, and there are very few white wine grapes that'll do that. And the same token, grown in the right places, made by a competent winemaker, it makes the finest white wines. And I love it because all the Riesling guys and and, oh, there's a hundred other varieties that will argue with me about that. And I don't care whether you want to look at bottle price or longevity of, of producers, but Chardonnay comes out on top. Known classically as white burgundy. It's the same grape, right? Okay. And that's a, that's a question I've had because I've mm-hmm. heard people throw that term around. And I'm like, right. is that, I didn't know exactly what the definition is. So it's white burgundy is Chardonnay. Right. So only Chardonnay can be grown as a white grape in in Burgundy. Okay. So when you say white Burgundy, you're talking about Chardonnay. And that's classic. That's the way it's been. I was going to say 300 years, but don't quote me on that because I can't remember now exactly, maybe not quite that long. It's embarrassing. I don't know that. I should know that (laughs) at the top of my head. But that grape has been identified, was identified in Burgundy as the best producer of white wines. And there are areas in growing areas in Burgundy, which make different versions of Chardonnay because the grapes mature differently. So a big difference between Montrachet and Chablis, but it's the same grape, right? Just like in Oregon, the difference between a Chardonnay grown you know, in the Dundee Hills versus a Chardonnay grown in the McMinnville AVA at my property, those two make very different wines, but they're both Chardonnay. Chardonnay grown at high elevation in the Rogue Valley can make beautiful wines, but they're very different than what's grown here. And that's because the grape can be very expressive 
of the conditions under which it's grown. And a lot of winemakers dismiss that. And there's not You're not alone in thinking like, what is Chardonnay? A lot of winemakers are very indifferent to that noble grape. And they tend to think of it in terms, again, of a wine that is made in the cellar. And unfortunately, the California expression of Chardonnay, which has been become to be dominant sort of on the world stage. And I have to say, having been a California winemaker for many, many, many years, that's erroneous as well because it, there is way more than one style of Chardonnay in California. But this idea of a white grape that is higher in alcohol, that has perhaps a little bit of sugar in it, that has been exposed to a lot of oak flavoring on one way or another, and has maybe even been allowed to express certain characteristics of the malolactic fermentation that give you some of those buttery characters. That style of Chardonnay has become ubiquitous with the term California Chardonnay, which is unfortunate. And that has nothing to do with great Chardonnay. And I will say that, you know, I've had plenty of California, quote unquote, style mm -hmm. Chardonnay and mm -hmm. not my favorite. It's just not my flavor profile. I'm not a big oak right. person. So even on red wine, don't necessarily care for a lot of oak. But if you have not tried Oregon Chardonnay, it's made differently. It's made with different expression. A lot of sparkling wines is made out of Chardonnay, which people don't know either. And it's just, it's amazing how many people just immediately shut it down, don't want to try it. And they're really missing the boat. Well, it's fun for me. At a, I've been making Chardonnay for a long, long time. It is one of the grapes that I, as I, you can obviously tell, I am incredibly endeared to and addicted to. And I believe that it is most fun at a tasting when someone walks up to your table and says, no, I don't want to try the Chardonnay. I don't like Chardonnay. It's like, yeah, you probably ought to try this. And uh, like, oh, gee, I, I've never had a Chardonnay like that. Yeah, you dipshit. It's because you buy cheap wine, <laughs> yeah. but pay, pay a little more money and you get what you paid for. All right. Thank you. I've had that conversation so many times with people. And I'm not a wine expert. I'm not a psalm. I'm not a wine expert, yeah. but I'm around it enough to you start understanding the behind the scenes part of a lot more. You do. So let me let me just uh, to finish on that because I yeah, I'm kind of on a roll here now. Let's talk about Chardonnay. You I, just called the so whole audience dipshits. So there, you there, go. there we Perfect. go. Perfect. Well, yes. this is good. Yes. This is why my brand does so poorly, but I make great <laughs> wine. So it is actually way more difficult to make a great white wine than it is a great red wine. Red wines are easier to make than white wines as a general rule. And they should actually be a lot more expensive. There's a lot more input to them and a lot more goes on both on the viticulture side uh, as well as in the cellar, and especially with a barrel fermented Chardonnay. So 100% of my Chardonnay is direct pressed, whole cluster direct pressed, and the juice basically goes into a barrel, a French barrel, where it is fermented, goes through its secondary fermentation, the malolactic fermentation, and it is basically in that barrel until I decide it needs to be bottled. That requires a lot of handling. It requires you being very plugged in and aware of what every single barrel is doing. It means you have to be much more careful about your fermentation rates, your temperatures, all those kinds of things that you are also true in red wine making, but white wine making, I think, is to do it really well is more challenging. And so I think some winemakers are somewhat dismissive of it as well. So I don't think it's just consumers that yeah. bear, bear the blame for it. There's 
yeah, I think I'll stop there rather than insult some of my fellow winemakers. Okay, good, because I want to move to my favorite grape that you make, which was, I get asked all the time what my favorite wine is. And I can't say that because I will piss off and alienate all of my friends that are in the winemaking industry. But I will tell you that my aha wine, that wine that made me go, holy hell, this stuff is amazing, was at a Linfield Oak and Vine tasting years ago. And I had never met you. I'd only met Ellen. And I was a little intimidated walking up to your table because I, I didn't know. But you served me a Syrah. And it freaking blew my mind. And I don't know if I've had the same reaction to a wine since. But I treasure trove those wines mm. that I get from you. Somebody I know drank my wine unbeknownst to me when I was on vacation while she was house sitting, but your wife had so kindly replaced for me. She actually dug through your cellar to find me a bottle. So I think I have one of each vintage that you've made. Oh, very nice. Yes. Very nice. So why is your Syrah so different than the other ones that you typically see? Is it a cool weather Syrah? And is that what makes it so different? Or is it just the Robert Britton touch? So the answer is that it's because of where it's grown. So I constantly get the comment about what the hell makes you think you can grow Syrah, you know, in the coast range in the Willamette Valley in Oregon. I mean, like whoever thought that Syrah would grow there. And what I love to point in, and it, other winemakers too, by the way, not just consumers. And what I love to point out is if you look, agriculture is to a large extent around the world centered around latitude. So if you're a beer drinker and you know anything about hops, you know that there's actually damn few places in the world where you can really grow hops and grow them well and grow them to the point that they have a unique flavor and aromatic profile that can really change a beer. What does that sound like? That sounds like wine grapes. Oh, so, so similar. Yeah. So yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it turns out that, you know, wine's similar, which is why we pay so much attention to latitude. Well, if you go around the world at the, what are we at, the 37th or whatever we are here, the town of McMinnville actually does not line up with the town of Bone, which is the center of Burgundy. Bone is actually much further north. So theoretically, the great Burgundies are grown in colder climate than Oregon. It's Willamette Valley. It's not entirely true, and that's what happens when you overly simplify. But just to go back to Syrah, if you go around the world, the town of Linville actually lines up with a growing region in France called Cote Roti. And what's the principal grape in Cote Roti? It's Syrah. Make some of the really most interesting and especially newer style Syrahs. So, so the, the, the Syrah grape originated in the Northern Round. Forget all the bullshit about Shiraz. There's no such thing as a Shiraz grape unless you live in Australia and can't pronounce Syrah. Is that the same thing? It's exactly the same thing. Okay. They, 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 I'm the, learning so much today. So the Australians trying to create their own unique identity for Syrah, have used the name Syrah's, Shiraz now for some time and claimed that there was some origin story in the, in the Middle East that all of that's been pretty well disproved through grape DNA work. The grape originated in the Northern Rhone. And I had an experience early in my winemaking career drinking an older Syrah 
in the Rhone, in fact, in the town of Hermitage on the banks of the Rhone River. And uh, that just blew my mind. And I knew nothing about the grape, nothing about the wine. And even more importantly, I didn't want to know anything because I was totally focused at that point on Cabernet. Because of that wine experience, I have, I started paying attention to Syrah. And when I moved to Stag Sleep Winery and discovered I had Syrah on the property, uh, along with a number of other Rhone varieties, I became very interested and have done, since that time, done quite a little bit of, done a little bit of consulting. I've done quite a little bit of travel and, and wine drinking in the Northern Rhone. And I became frustrated with the Syrahs that I made in Napa Valley because none of them had this characteristic that I found so endearing in the Rhone. Those wines are about acidity. Those wines are about the expression of flavor and the development of aromatics that come with aging. Sounds a little bit like Pinot Noir. Those two grapes are so much more similar than Syrah and Cabernet. And unfortunately, the, because of the Australian experience, also in Washington State and in California, Syrah became the category Syrah. And the category Syrah, like the category Chardonnay, became all about high alcohol, actually slightly sweet, wines that are just overwhelming to the palate. Whereas a true Syrah grape is like a Pinot Noir. It's about acidity. It's about structure. It's about elegance. And this incredible, complex series of aromatics and flavors that are possible. The whole world, I shouldn't say that, but sort of the domestic wine business of consumers in the United States have turned their back on the high alcohol Syrah to a large extent. That category is very difficult to sell. And, but it's slowly being replaced by a number of small producers who are focused on this, as you said, this whole concept of cool climate Syrah. Well, that can mean a lot of things. But what I'll tell you is that when I planted Syrah out in the McMinnville AVA, you know, 35 miles from the coast of the Pacific coast, everyone, including my wife, said, you're nuts. This is not going to work. And they were right. They were right. And we can spend a half an hour talking about why growing Syrah on that piece of property is such a challenge. But it's such an amazing grape. And it so adapts itself to the site that, like my Pinots, it's a almost unique expression of Syrah. It's almost a unique expression of that grape that comes off of my property. A combination of the high mineral soils, the fact that it has to be very low yield, and the wind makes that Syrah unlike any other Syrah. But it is a higher acid very low pH. All of my wines are very low pH, if you want to talk chemistry at all, which is incredible to the ageability of wines. And it is a totally fascinating, fascinating wine off of that property. And I make a tiny amount of it because the yields are so damn low and whoever in the hell wants to drink wine from Oregon, from Oregon anyway. Me. And with that, I'm going to stop you right there because that was like the pinnacle of the end right there. So, okay. Yes. Good. But do you know where people can find you on social media and the web? Or do I need to 
tell them? I have no idea because I <laughs> I take a great you're not, pride. Because you're not Ellen. No, because I'm not Ellen. Because I take great pride in being a Luddite. For someone who started out, you know, I built my first computer in 1968 before transistors were hardly around. I was, I had, but I used to be able to program in five languages. I do think flowcharting is one of the coolest things I ever, skill sets I ever learned in my life with this monkey mind that goes in so many directions. It's amazing. <laughs> but... I have become completely analog in my old age. So, no, I can't so, tell you. <clears throat> so, one, you should always go to the tasting room in McMinnville out in the grain station area and taste wine. You might actually get a meet Robert as he wanders through or even Ellen for that matter, but they have great staff down there. So it's Britain Vineyards, I think on the web. It's definitely Britain Vineyards on the social media, both Instagram and Facebook, and it's B-R-I-T-T-A-N Vineyards. So there you go. I did a plug for you. So Thank you. Honey. Yes, you're welcome. You're thank welcome. You. Thank you. And thank you so very much um, for coming in, dropping in. I know you've got a busy day and we need to get you back out of here and Thanks. out into the vineyards, but I need to swing by and get some more Syrah because I, I think we drank it, everything I got from you a few there months ago. There isn't anymore. There isn't? No. Oh, damn. I pulled the vines out. You did? No. Oh, I'm like, come on. I about had a heart attack right there. Well, <clears throat> since you are now full of shit, we're going to stop right there and say, please, not only share our episodes and whatever with your friends. Thank you to Robert. Thank you to Daniel with South Bottom Production. Shay is my assistant. We only have a few episodes with her but she's the one that drank my wine a few years ago when she was house-sitting. and um, still, still on staff. Yeah, yes, I haven't fired her yet, but she's moving to California, damn her. So, And then Dustin with Biscuit and Pickles Catering, he did drop us up food for us to snack on, but uh, you may have to run right out of here. So anyhow, thank you again. Thank you to Ellen. And I still have the bottle of wine that you helped me blend during our Linfield class way back when. So, oh my God. One of these days I need to open that and see how badly I did. But it's sure. your wine, so it has to taste. Has to be good. Has to be good. So, has to be good. Thank Anyhow, you, Heidi. I yes. appreciate it very much. This was fun. Yes. Thank you.